have two, three, four, five, six, and seven in the world on our team. We yeah. should kill these guys. I mean, honestly, we should just. Um, should. This episode of Half Forgotten History is brought to you by Bourbon Time and Jim Beam. You know, with the loss of our commutes during the pandemic, we've all lost that natural break from the workday to the evening. I've definitely felt that it's been tougher this year than ever to remember to take some time to transition myself from work to relaxation. So my friends at Jim Beam want to help solve this so we can get our me time back. Beat the burnout and commit to taking the hour of 6 to 7 p.m. as your me time, where you turn the phone on Do Not Disturb and do something that you love with no strings attached. Even though we like to enjoy our me time with a glass of Maker's Mark, you don't have to enjoy bourbon in order to participate in the movement. Do whatever is restorative for you, whether it's yoga or Maker's Mark or golf or Maker's Mark or just relaxing or Maker's Mark. Do whatever it is that makes you the better version of yourself. So let's make the idea of bourbon time a reality. Join me in reclaiming 6 to 7 p.m. as the happiest hour so you can do whatever it is that makes you happy. And if it involves a glass of bourbon, remember to drink Maker's Mark responsibly. Maker's Mark Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, 45% alcohol by volume, copyright 2021, Maker's Mark Distillery Incorporated, Loretto, Kentucky. Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. We're taking a slight turn this week. Yes, it's fall and football's first and foremost in everybody's mind, but this is Ryder Cup week. United States versus Europe, whistling straights. The Ryder Cup is my all-time favorite sporting event. I make no bones about it. It's the only sport I know where millionaires will sign up for free just to beat the crap out of the other team. It's a different kind of pressure. And our guest this week is someone who knows that pressure very, very well. Four times he was a member of the U.S. Ryder Cup team as a player. Won two and lost two. And then in 2008, he was the victorious captain for the U.S. Ryder Cup squad that took down the Euros in Valhalla. I'm talking about, of course, Paul Azinger who does a great job now calling golf for NBC. You've done everything in golf, right? You you won 16 times on the tour. You're a major winner. You've played golf since you were five. What does the Ryder Cup mean to you? It means everything. I I think when you start out to play golf, you know, you you can't imagine that you'd ever be that drop in the bucket that makes it on tour and then make a living at it. The Ryder Cup, when I first started to play golf, wasn't anything I ever thought of. But once that you realized that you could represent your country playing the game of golf. And for me, I was so disconnected from the game as a kid. Um, I never paid attention to Ryder Cup or any of that stuff. And then all of a sudden you realize you can, it's patriotism. That's the main thing, carrying that flag, I guess. Well, you were a part of four Ryder Cup teams as a player and obviously a victorious captain in 2008. Um, listen, for, for me, I fell in love with golf at the 1991 Ryder Cup. I did not play as a kid. Uh, You know, I was involved in other sports and watched other sports. But it was right around that time that I had a lot of free time on the weekends, and so I decided to sort of learn to play a little bit. And I'm telling you, the 91 War on the Shore, I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And it might go down as the most contentious uh, sporting event I've ever seen in my life, and you were in the thick of it. I was in the thick of that, and it really did put you it on Seve. the map. It put it on the map uh, for the Americans in this country. They all started to fall in love with it. How old were you then? That's what I want to know. And <laughs> I mean, seriously, <laughs> old enough. Yeah, I, let's see. I was okay. I would have been. I would have been twenty. Twenty-four. Does that sound about right? Yeah, twenty-four. Yeah, I was thirty-one, and uh, yeah. that was a, just an unbelievable 
Ryder Cup for all of us, and it was contentious, you know, for a variety of reasons. Um, I felt like what happened, Trey, was about, I don't know, 82 or three, a bunch of us got on tour, 84, 85, and 83 was the first time that it was really close on American soil, Europe, right. all of Europe was included, and Seve Ballesteros was a spiritual leader, there's no doubt about that, a team leader. And then when they won in Europe in 85, we watched that happen. We're just still trying to make a living. And, you know, I still couldn't rub two nickels together. I hadn't even yeah. paid taxes. And I was 25 years old because I had never made a profit in my life. And <laughs> and so Ryder Cup's the last thing I thought about. But then when they won in 87, I was already becoming a better player, as was that whole group of guys from 82 tour school all the way through to 84. And when Jose Maria danced across that green at Muirfield Village, I think that all of us then took something personal to it. And we were the next group of guys that made the Ryder Cup team yeah. in 1989. And then by the time 91 rolled around, buddy, it was on. And we had war on the shore going, or we had the real war in the Persian Gulf going. For some reason, yep. we had the camo hats. I didn't participate in the camo concept very much, but a lot of guys did. And there was criticism in the European tabloids, which really made it great. And I said some things and I had some battles with Seve and Jose, but that's really how we all got mega fired up about what was happening between the United States and Europe golf wise. And yeah. it got, it just got ugly. They were better than us. You know, now we're better than them. They were better than us at the time. And we were, had the chip on our shoulder. Now we're better than them and they have the chip. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you, when you say Seve was a spiritual leader of that team, there's no question he was the undisputed king of gamesmanship on the European side. But so many Europeans would say, you're the Seve Ballesteros for the Americans. I remember the Seve quote after the 91 Ryder Cup. He said, the American team was 11 nice guys and Paul Azinger. Yeah, that was a beautiful quote. Uh, <laughs> that's perfect. I wish I would have thought of it myself. But it's really not, that's not completely true. I, I think of that... Course. I thought you were going to say even the European players thought that Seve was a kind of the king of gamesmanship. I really was <laughs> never, I couldn't play that game. But yeah. I also couldn't tolerate it if a guy yeah. early walked on you or something. And I thought my behavior there honestly was right where it should have been. I think the whole episode on the 10th tee, there was so much that went on before that. A, a hook, we were playing alternate shots. Seve hooked a shot to the left into an area that was a hazard or it could have been a lost ball, depending on how it was marked. And we debated the drop, and I think they did the wrong thing. They were supposed to drop like it was a lost ball. They dropped like it was a hazard, which was weird because we had settled on something different. Then the fourth hole, Seve hooked it into the stuff, and the official at the time said five minutes is up. And then about 10 or 15 seconds later, they found the ball, and he let them hit it, and I just was – you know, I should go crazy over that, shouldn't I? So I, I, I yes. went to the official and said, you can't want to play that. I mean, the time was up. And so then I requested another official, which we got, and replaced that guy. But they were able to play out that hole. We beat them on that hole anyway. Then we get to seven. And I think uh, Chip Beck and I were using different compression golf balls at the time. 90 compression and 100, 100 I got those balls sitting in the office. I can't believe I'm not holding them right now. Gosh. <laughs> um, but anyway, those two balls, I, I've got them, and I bring them on air at the Ryder Cup for the line. That'll be awesome. But uh, 
the point is on that par five, I was just out thinking and I, I controlled between Chip and Beck. I was doing all the, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And the reason, you know, we loved our compression ball. I used 100, he used a 90 or vice versa. He used 100, I used a 90. I wanted to hit my 90 degree compression into the green so he would hit the, the 90 off the tee. Well, we got to the par five, it was going to take three to get there. We overthought it. Hey, let's hit this ball instead of that ball. And it doesn't work that way. They claimed three holes on us on the 10th tee, which is not what Which happened. is not the rule. It's not the rule. And I'm sorry I'm giving you the long story of this, but that in no, the end, that's, good. that's what happened. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't the, being a bad guy in that situation. I was shocked on 10T because we were completely oblivious if we had made those mistakes at the time. And uh, we did that, though. We definitely made the mistake. I've never denied that we made the mistake, but the idea that they yeah. could get three holes out of us and then, you know, the, the claim, it felt like you're accusing us of cheating here. And that's farthest thing from what happened. So yeah. that's how that whole thing went down. And uh, I had no idea the cameras were there or any of that, but it did help put that Ryder Cup on the map. The fact that it was contentious um, in this country, people now watch the Ryder Cup and now it's kind of the hammer against the nail. And unfortunately the Americans are the nail. And now it's, if you look at it, it's, it's like we win every other, every third Ryder Cup or every fourth Ryder Cup we win. They've got an edge on us and we got to figure out what it is. Well, we've lost seven of the last 10. I mean, if we're just being honest, that, that's how dominant the Europeans have been. We lost five of the previous six coming into my Ryder Cup, or four of the previous exactly. five anyway. And it's yeah. always that way. And it's like we win a Ryder Cup and then it buys them, you know, the PGA of America two or three more years to sell the competition. And, and then we show back up and get clobbered again. It, it's uh, There's some formula over there that they have uh, that I, I think I put my finger on it, but you know. Well, what is it? What do you think it is? Well, you know, they, <laughs> they're bonded by blood. That's number one. And they have a chip on their shoulder. And every one of them, the, the guys I talk to, Sergio and Rom, they say, you know, we take our egos off at the door. Everyone's in there to make everyone else better. And I believe that. And I don't know that we're always like that. I think our team rooms do real well. You know, uh, but there's just something different in the end about their messaging and our messaging. And now they have confidence, which is an earned commodity. Um, yeah. To go into great detail of what we did and how it worked, you know, would be pointless to me because it was so long ago. I didn't deal with social media and I didn't deal with the, these guys branding themselves on Twitter and Instagram and all that. It's, it, you know, they're going to have to deal with a, a, a media. It's going to, they're going to ask them about Bryson and Brooks and, chemistry and all that. Europe's got none of those issues and they're bonded by blood. I mean, the Englishmen play together, the Spaniards play together, the Irishmen play together. You know, that's just the way it is. And I wish we were the Texans and the Floridians in the, in, in the United States, but it doesn't seem we're much more disconnected than they are. They're a full-blown family. I, you know, does that help you? Because in the end, it comes down to a putt, doesn't it? All that messaging yeah. and all that it comes down to the will to win and the desperation that you feel when you have to make that putt. And believe me, you're there, you know the consequences, you know the significance of every putt. You're not there oblivious and just going through your routine. I hope you're not. That's a failed effort at sports psychology to me. Oh, just stick to your routine. These guys, you gotta lock in 
and know you need to make that putt. That's everything that we do and these players are prepared for is to deal with pressure and how to handle it. And this can be the most pressure they have ever felt. The Americans have six new players that have never done this before. And I think it's going to help them, uh, be honest yeah. with you. I, I see the American team, I see them winning this time, even though they've got a little bit of a disconnect. Well, look, if you just go by world golf rankings, we it's a dominant squad uh, for the United States. But as you alluded to, sometimes that just doesn't translate. And you talk about the pressure. It is a different pressure in the Ryder Cup because when you won your PGA in 1993, you know it was up to you. And you controlled what you can control. And you were doing it basically for you and your team and your family. And I mean your team, you know, your caddy and your yeah. sponsor, all that kind of stuff. But when you go out on the Ryder Cup and now you're playing for the guy to your left and the guy to your right and you realize there's a flag involved, that changes the entire dynamic. Yeah, and the whole trick is to try to control how your body responds. And the, the whole idea, you know, the days and weeks leading up to it, like right now, for example, is wrapping your brain around what you're about to deal with in your mind so that you're in your mind, you're trained and ready for it. I always played alternate shot with my buddies at home in, in pressure situations. And I just kept putting myself in a Ryder Cup in my mind. And I can't reiterate that enough, the value and importance. But if there's an obsession in their heads right now that they can't get out, when they lay down on the pillow, they're thinking of the Ryder Cup. The players that have never played whistling straights are having panic and anxiety over there in Europe. That's the hopefully the one advantage that a U.S. team would have. Um, but, you know, it's a link style course. If the wind starts blowing, maybe those yeah. guys will start licking their chops. So I don't understand why you would go to whistling straights at this point. But they didn't know when they booked it 10 or 12 years ago that the U.S. would be losing every Ryder Cup. But uh, I, I, should, I say every. I'm being a little bit hard on the fact that we keep getting you know, taken down. But uh, you never know how your body's going to react when you get on that first tee. You know, I've had situations where I felt my pulse in my eyeballs, like literally boom, boom, your chest, your heart can hit you that hard, but you better hang on and, and kind of figure out how to breathe yourself out of that because golf is five hours of walking and about a minute and a half of actual motion. The rest of it's yeah. thinking and controlling your brain and your mind, that whole thing, and, and dealing with the guy next to you. I always looked at the guy next to me, and I, and I just figured he was as nervous as me. And um, I didn't want that guy celebrating at my expense because, quite honestly, I didn't really care for the fella. No matter who it was, I didn't like any of them. I like them all now. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, It's good now that you're not going up against him. You know, but like, it is it is strange. Paul, it, it is strange because, like – to me, the easiest pick of all for the for the Europeans on the Cavs pick was Ian Poulter. Yeah. Because every two years, Ian Poulter becomes the greatest player in the history of the game. And it does feel like, on the European side, there is more of a sense of desperation to make sure they win the Cup than I get from the American side. That's a fair assessment. I think it's everything that they live for when they first get out there and play professionally. Where for us, you know, we're trying to scratch out a living and we're not thinking about the Ryder Cup. For them, it's all that they think about. Their tour owns their Ryder Cup. The PGA of America owns our Ryder Cup. That is a little, that's a lot of a difference, really. So they really have ownership. You know, every captain, I think, has to figure out how to get our players fully invested and engaged, but also hand over ownership. 
Yeah, that's what I did in, in 08. You know, I created the four-man teams. And the I pods. picked Stricker. I had eight picks. I picked Stricker, which gave me nine players. And through personality styles, you know, I observed them with a guy who's an expert, Ron Braun, Dr. Ron Braun. And we put them in personality types and broke them up into green light, caution light, red light scenarios. And so we had three three-man pods that were essentially all green lights. And then... I gave those three three-man pods ownership, let them pick who would fill out their pod. And I'm telling you, man, they, those guys would have run through a wall for each other. And I, I'm hoping Stricker can get those guys invested and have ownership. From the few talks that I've had with Steve, he's going to make sure that the players don't have to deal with any of the nervous, you know, hyped-up videos, the flag-waving patriotism videos. You know, um, those things always made me more nervous. I'm glad to hear I wasn't the only one. Stricker said he he it made him more nervous, and um, he's not going to do that sort of thing. I just hope that he has those guys uh, invested in giving them just full-blown ownership in this Ryder Cup. And the main message, though, I told Steve from my perspective was that they had to know the course better than the other team. That, that's first and foremost. It's interesting you mentioned Whistling Straits because – Look, obviously, these things are cited years ago, but it does seem like more often than not, we tend to go to places that might favor the European game. You know, you mentioned the wins, and it's a Lynx course. They play the ball on the ground more than we do. We play the ball in the air, and it just seems like those kind of courses, even though they haven't played it a lot, give them an advantage because it gives them a, a familiar setting and a familiar way to play the game. Well, I think they putt better in the win, too. That's another key. When you get to the Ryder Cup, if you watch the Solheim Cup, couple weeks ago I did if the American girl makes the putt and the European girl misses the putt the Americans win but the American girl missed the putt and the European girl made the putt and they lost it came down to one putt I don't know what you can do as a captain or in a team room you know messaging in that whole nine yards that can make the difference in that person one guy making the putt the other guy missing the putt in the end so it's really you know you give up control you try to create an environment to make those players successful and comfortable in the whole nine yards the next thing is the course and when you go to a course where it's going to be blowing 20 or 30 which is what they say i don't see how that helps us uh especially when it comes down to the putt because you know in the wind our guys can hit it we, we're going to control the ball in the wind. We're going to hit as many or more greens. But putting in the wind, that's a whole nother ball of wax. Some guys know how to factor that in. I would bet that they would know how to factor it in better than we would. That's just logic. So it's just a hard competition to win. You know, look, Vegas builds hotels on a 1% advantage in blackjack. 1% advantage. They show up you know, with a 1% advantage when they come to the United States. Number one, they usually know all the courses as well as we do. We go to Europe, we don't know the courses, that's a given. But they're bonded by something that gives them that edge. So I think you can only assume they have a 1% edge, razor thin, right? And you have to, as a captain, try to figure out how to get that back to at least even and maybe get yourself on the other side of the edge. Our team was bonded with a secret, which helped, I think. And we knew the course better than they did. Uh, whether they're bonded by a secret over there, I don't know. But the key, they have to be able to fit the course better than the other team, don't they? If you're the home yeah. captain and they already show up with a 1% edge. So you're right. Watch the golf course on TV and keep asking yourself if, if the Americans 
are going to handle that or, or aren't they going to handle it? I personally think they will. I personally think they're going to know the course better than the other team. Uh, and I think the Americans are going to win the match. I really do. But I'm not going to bet on it. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break here. and we come back, we'll break down specifically what we see in the matchups and the teams this year between uh, the USA and the European team. We're right back with Paul Azinger. Overcoming the odds, rewriting the playbook, delivering under pressure. The MVPs of small business lead their teams to victory all year long. And Visa is proud to provide playmakers everywhere with more tools to help grow their business and help them achieve even greater success. Because the more people we can empower, the more we all win. Visa, a network working for everyone. All right, back with Paul Azinger, again, four-time Ryder Cup uh, player and 2008 captain of the Val uh, victorious U.S. squad at Valhalla. Uh, you, you found the compression balls from the 91 Ryder Cup, right? Yeah, let me see if I can get them right. You can even see the dimple dots on them. Here, I know you can. Oh, that's crazy. Where's the camera? Right there. Is that all right? That's perfect. You see where we, that. we poked the, with the pencil... But those are the two yeah. balls. I wish that the game was played with these balls still. This ball spun enough um, that you wouldn't have to lengthen all the courses. Was it the ball or the, or the square wedges that spun the ball? No, it, the ball spun like crazy. You could cut this ball in half almost. You could chew through it. You could bite it. Uh, it changed. The ball goes so much farther because it doesn't spin. All they got to do is make it spin more. Problem solved. Easiest pie. Yeah. And nothing looks prettier than a ball that leaves on the first floor, climbs up to the third floor, comes down like a butterfly with sore feet. But they go like this now, just arc over. It's terrible. I, I love secondary flight. Like, I know I've hit a good ball. That's, that's, that's the, the greatest of, feeling in the world. The Hall of Fame is full of players that hit up shooters. That was how right. you played golf. It was so pure to watch a tee shot leave right out of there like a bullet, head high, and then choom, straight up in the air. Because the wind hit it, and those days were yeah. gone, man. Now that ball just yeah. leaves and goes out of sight. Yeah. All right. So let's let's break down the American squad, and you alluded to it a little bit. How do you think? Because they both said the right things, right? Brooks has said the right thing. Uh, we're going to tone this down for the Ryder Cup, and Bryson said the same thing. But can they? I mean, they got to coexist, and it is it is a, a you know it's pretty obvious how they feel about each other. You know, I've been saying uh, that they're going to take the American team like the globe and put it on their back so those two guys can carry the team as team leaders. They can put everything aside and, and get this done. Or they can be a royal pain in the butt. But I don't see that happening. I think they're two grown men. You know, I love Bryson. He's one of my favorite players. I hope I don't come off negative on him like everybody else seems to. He can be exhausting. He's so intelligent yeah. that there's no way to see into his brain. And there's nothing that, you know, uh, you can tell the guy. So he's it's tough. I get it. But at the same time, he's the most squeaky clean, USGA, NCAA, Hogan hat, you know, dressing like pain. Everything Amateur about champ. the guy, charitable. He, ex he revealed his life in, in Instagram. And so did Brooks. Brooks they revealed their life. They they. Um, they market their brand is what they do. They become a brand. Bryson told the whole world what he was about to do. And everybody was like, yeah. we hope you fail, bud, because no one's done that before. You're going to gain 50 pounds and 10 miles an hour club head speed. And he did it. And then he won the U.S. Open. And I think there's some jealousy there because, quite frankly, he's the number one draw. Who, who's the best, who would you go see? Who do you want to see? Bryson. Yeah. You want to see that? Yeah. You want to see that ball go far? 
So he's done that. Brooks has won the four majors, you know, and uh, they don't like each other. It's obvious. Slow play was the beginning of the whole problem between the two. Was just slow. He play. is slow. I mean, like, listen, I, I all, all the thing you're saying about Bryson is true, but it is like, dude, pick it up. Nobody likes anybody that plays slow. They're not popular. It's just a fact. They'll never be popular because generally it's deemed as being selfish. But Bryson goes through so much. I don't know how he ever pulls it back, to tell you the truth. And I asked him one time about feel. I said, where does the feel come in, Bryson, on you, for you? What, what elements, what aspect of feel? He says, you know, I've always studied the science of feel. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, here we go. He was telling me earlier in the year that, that uh, he was getting a negative gear effect from his driver. And he asked me if I knew what that was. I said, I don't think I do. He, well, he said he would hit the ball so hard at certain speeds that the club would react differently when impacted on the same exact path and hit on the same exact spot of the club. And he was getting what he called a variable gear effect. And that's when he decided to lose some weight and slow down his club head speed because the equipment couldn't keep up with what he was doing. So that's in your team room. Yeah, that's an yeah. expert. But I think he could be the team leader all by himself. Brooks is too quiet. I don't see him being that guy. Um, Jordan maybe, but quite honestly, I, I, you don't need a team leader. Somebody will emerge with by scoring points. Yeah. That's your team leader. Hal Sutton infamously once put Tiger and Phil together right, uh, and a Ryder Cup pairing, and that did not work. It worked. Would you, if you were cat? No, it was a disaster. You wanted to watch. Would, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was an implosion. Would you even think about putting those two guys together? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to repeat the risk, to be honest with you. Yeah. I would put Bryson with Scotty Scheffler. Uh, they, they're members at the same club. They hang out, play together. Scotty Scheffler's incredible. But he's the one mystery guy, right, really, that's never – he's going to have no idea because he's never made a winning putt on the PGA Tour. He's been dominant at every level he's ever played. But you had to jump Kokrak to get to Scheffler. You had to jump Reed to get to Scheffler. You know, you had to jump some good players. So there can be a lot of pressure on Scotty Scheffler. I think he goes right sits in there with Bryson – and those two are going to be tough. Were you surprised that Patrick wasn't on the team, considering what we've seen from him in past uh, you know, team events, whether it's the, the Ryder Cup or, or the President's Cup? Well, you could say about Reed the same thing you said about Poulter. He, he, yeah. he becomes the best player yeah. in the world, you know, yeah, just absolutely. like that. But he's got a lot of issues. You know, you kick his personality, likes and dislikes, or whatever he's done in the past, probably to the curb. The real reality is going to be the endurance aspect of Ryder Cup. I mean, if you're going to pick a guy, you better have a guy that can go five matches. That's all I'm telling you. If you have bilateral pneumonia, well, then you got a problem. You cannot pick a guy in this day and age that can't go all five matches for you, in my opinion. Yeah. And that's probably the main consideration for Reed. Is there a guy uh, – you, you mentioned look, Sheffield. You don't want a guy yeah. to go all five matches, but you have to have no. a guy that could. Yeah. yeah, right, exactly. You, you need to be able to play that card. That's right. Is what you're saying. The team, the U.S. team is just stacked. I mean, if you just go by world rankings and, and everything else that's going on, is there a player that you see on the U.S. side that we all think of as, oh, he's going to be fine, that you go, well, let's see? Well, all of them, to tell you the yeah. truth. Every one of them, right? From, you know, look at our team. I mean, we've got Colin Morikawa. He's never been there. He's going to be fine. Right. Eh, you never know. Dustin Johnson, eh, you never know. You know Justin Thomas always is going to show up. But 
Well, you know, we have two, three, four, five, six, and seven in the world on our team. We also have nine, 11, I think, and number 19 or 14, whatever he's, Scheffler is. We yeah. should kill these guys. I mean, honestly, we should just, um, we should. One. Doesn't work that way. They can hide nope. four players. We have to sit four players. You can be as deep as you want. You still got to sit four guys uh, the first two days. Um, so it's it's a tough deal. Uh, with depth, depth doesn't mean that much in this match. But uh, I just think the time has come for this American team to, to – all these young guys, look at uh, Xander Shoffley and guys like that. They've got to be looking at the older generation now and be thinking, man, why couldn't you beat these guys? And you know what? The same ones are showing up, really, aren't they? Westwood showing yeah. up. Holter showing up. You know, these, guys, you. these guys are showing back up, and they're saying, hey, see if you can take a step. And the younger guys on our team, the chip-on-your-shoulder guys, I think the generation like I was, they showed up. And I just feel like this is going to be a bonded American team. All right, you just mentioned something that I think is, is the one thing that nobody talks about enough in the Ryder Cup but can be the deciding thing, who you sit and when you sit them. You know, like I, I go back to Brookline in 99. By the way, side note, I was doing SportsCenter that day, and they made me go sit in another room because I was so fired up. I was screaming on that comeback on, on Sunday. They said, you need to calm down. I was like, I was an American first before I became an ESPN yeah. employee. Like, I was off the charts that day. But well, the point I'm making is James tried to hide his players, and a lot of them didn't play until Sunday. That's right. And that came up and bit him in the butt uh, Sunday at Brookline. The, the, the decision when to sit them and how to sit them and how you handle the egos that want to go out there and play. I, I think that's the one part of the Ryder Cup chemistry that isn't talked enough about. Yeah, my first Ryder Cup was 1989, and I sat in the morning, and it was the worst sit because I knew I was going to play in the afternoon, but it was terrible. What a terrible feeling that was. Uh, anxiety and the pressure and watching and wanting to be out there. Uh, it's it's hard to get someone to sit. I I had the pod system set up and I, I just said point blank. I told all 12 guys, I said, you're all going to play first day. Unfortunately, four of you have to sit in the morning, but all four of you will play in the afternoon, do what you need to do, however you do it. But you better make those decisions early and you better, I think, get all 12 guys out on day one if you're the American team. Um, we got a bunch of young guys out there. I think every one of our players can play all five matches if you have to. Some guys will have to, it looks like. Um, but we'll see what happens. Quite frankly, just, it just looks like it should be a blowout. But they've got that. It always, it almost always looks like it should be a blowout. Well, and now I get it like in, in 2018, 2018, we went there right after uh, the tour championship and Tiger had just won for the first time, you know, in so long after the comeback. I, I think the U.S. team was drained. I think some of our best players were just – they were drained uh, by that point. But that should not be the case this year. No, they're going to be jacked up. I think they're going to take it personal. The, the guys, you know, that have never been there have no scar tissue whatsoever. And, you know, generally what happens is a younger player, a first-timer, comes up and ends up being the team leader. We had Anthony Kim, who, who was the team leader. And, oh, by the way – I communicated all to all my guys according to their personality type. So I would encourage one guy, and, you know, I would challenge another guy. And Anthony Kim all week, he kept saying, I want, you know, I want to play Sergio Zinger. I want to play Sergio. Well, it doesn't work that way. You submit your team in an envelope. They submit their team 
And then you see how you know, it works out. Turns out Sunday he got Sergio, but on day one, he and Mickelson went out. And our whole message, you know, if I de delivered any message, it was let's play to play great. That came from Bob Rotella. Let's be aggressive because that's match play. And let's show off for our people, lapel pins and all that stuff. And I wanted the, the players to believe that I thought they were the best team. You know, they're, I wanted them, well, first of all, I wanted them to be in full-blown show-off mode, and I wanted them to have confidence yeah. in my confidence in them. That was the message, to get these guys in full-blown show-off mode. So Anthony Kim's coming on the first tee in that match on day one, the most nervous shot of the whole deal. And I said, uh, how you feeling, AK? He said, I'm going to show off for you today, Captain. I'm going to kick his ass for you today. He's hitting me in the chest. And I was like, all right. So he and Phil get out there. And by, I haven't talked to him now for two and a half hours or so. And we're on the 13th or 14th hole. I think it was 14. And they were two down. And Anthony Kim airmailed the green, this, this par three, uh, 14. And they were in trouble. The Europeans missed the green. And so I said to Ron, Dr. Ron, who was sitting next to me, I said, I got to go say something to these guys. And, he, and he, he said, go challenge. And so I didn't know what I would say. And I booked it down through the crowd and pulled up there. And I, there's Phil trying to figure out how to hit this flop shot from over the green. And there was Anthony Kim. I'm going to kick his ass for you today, Captain. Um, I just said, uh, I walked up under the rope and I kind of just gave him a side eye. And he looked over back at me and he says, what's the matter? I said, buddy, I thought you were going to show off for me today. You're showing me squat. And then he busted out laughing. He says, relax, man. We're not going to let them beat us. And in <laughs> seconds, Mickelson hits this shot up there like that, and they saved par. And then AK hit it about eight feet on the next hole, and they won that hole. And then by the end, I think they tied that match. But there was some players that you could challenge like that and other players that you had to encourage at the right time. And – that's just how it works, you know, is, is if you're the captain, create the best environment and then message them according to, you know, their personalities, which for us, I think is different because we have to learn who you have. They've already established, you know, who they are over there. They're the Spaniards, the Englishmen. They have that advantage. And I can't reiterate that enough. They're bonded by something extra. But I feel like our captains need to know our personality types well enough that when they get in tight spot, you deliver the right message, not the wrong words. Does that make sense? Absolutely. All right, let's take our final break, come back and look at real quickly, look at the European team and get get one one prediction on this. He's already said he's going, but I want I want to be more specific. So we'll be right back with more from Paul Azinger right after this. Hey everybody, Trey Wingo here to tell you that NFLSundayTicket.tv is like having front row seats to every out-of-market game all season long, every Sunday afternoon. No matter where you live, that is a lot of football. And guess what? This season you get more football than ever before. 18 weeks of NFL glory right there in front of you, streamed to your favorite device. Just picture this scenario with me. You sit down, you put your feet up, kick back, eat snacks, and watch an insane amount of NFL football every Sunday afternoon. So make your seat a front row seat and catch every second of your favorite players and your favorite teams every Sunday afternoon. Now to see if you're eligible for this, make sure you go to nflsundayticket.tv slash sundayready and stream every NFL Sunday ticket game this season to follow your favorite team no matter where you live. Use promo code WINGO2021 at checkout to get 15% off. Exclusive discounts also available. Select international games excluded. Eligibility restrictions do apply. Compatible device required. Data charges may apply. 
Week two of the NFL is in the books, and now it's time to review the tape and get ready for week three with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. To kick off another action-packed week, DraftKings is giving new customers $150 instantly when they bet $1 on any football game. Now, you listen up because you don't want to miss this. Head to DraftKings Sportsbook app now and place a bet of $1 on any week three game and receive $150 in free bets instantly. Sportsbook is not yet available in your state. DraftKings still has huge prizes up for grabs all season long with their daily fantasy contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in deals and total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code WINGO to receive $150 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any football game. That's promo code WINGO this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only, new customers only, minimum $5 deposit, and $1 wager required. One per customer, and restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. And if you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. All right, back with Paul Azinger, of course, four-time Ryder Cup uh, member on, on uh, Team USA and, of course, the victorious captain in 2008 of Valhalla. You know, you look at the, uh, you look at the European squad and, you know, again, we've talked about it. The U.S. team top to bottom is much better in the world rankings and, and we expect them to play well. Who are the players on the European side that you're thinking, I ain't worried about that guy? And who are the guys like, well, I'm not so sure about that guy? Well, all of them, again, you know, every one of them concerns <laughs> me. They have a heck of a team. Go through their list. Uh, John Rahm, he's their best player by a mile. Nobody wants to face Rahm. He's going to get put with another Spaniard probably. Uh, I would guess he's probably going to play with Sergio. And then who, I don't know their list. Can you read it off real quick? Uh, it's uh, Casey, uh, Fitzpatrick, Fleetwood, Garcia, Hatton, Hovland, Lowry, McElroy, Poulter. Uh, you mentioned Rahm, Wiesberger, and Westwood. I have a sneaky feeling Victor Hovland's going to play well. Um, yeah. He's, he scares me a little bit. Beastburger is somebody nobody really knows, but he's an incredible player. Hits really good. And so he's kind of a scary guy. But what I wonder is if the guys in their 40s that you mentioned, the older players, and someone like Terrell Hatton, yep. they're the mystery, you know, to me. You pick Poulter, that's fine and dandy, and maybe he shows up again, but maybe he doesn't. And, and then you pick Westwood, and he's been playing great, but – He's starting to get up there a little bit. That guy, by the way, is way better than I thought. Uh, I think I inspired him when I said that tour uh, a while back. That was a mistake, probably. Uh, I resurrected him, and uh, that I know they're going to play that in their locker room plenty. So of course, that'll be that'll be terrible for us. But uh, they got a great team. I just yeah. I just don't see how they can win, honestly. You know, I, I say that almost every time, and every time it seems to, it seems to backfire. So I like I'm done. It's like years ago I was like, oh, Tom Brady's never going to catch Peyton Manning, and then you know on all his records, then he just lapped. I'm like, I'm never like until Tom Brady actually is dead, I'm not going to believe he's not going to win the Super Bowl. That just yeah. I, it's been beaten right. into me, and I, and I sort of feel the same way about the Europeans. You look at the team, and you look at the matchups, and you look at the rank, and you think, oh, the U.S. has got this, yet we never have it. So I I, I just I cannot in any way, shape, or form wrap my head around the idea that they're not going to find a way, 
for Tommy Fleetwood and Eduardo Molinari, who's not, or Frankie Molinari, who's not on the team this year. But those two were unbeatable in Paris uh, a couple of years ago. I just, I'm expecting those things to happen. Well, we didn't know that golf course at all. Nobody knew how to play yeah. the course. They were laying up with irons into the water and into the deep rough. The Americans got slayed and had no yeah. chance to win that Ryder Cup. We were, like you said, exhausted. Tiger was in no man's land. Who knew where his head was at the time? And that, that team was just going to always be throttled. And you look at their parents. You know, I'm thinking about McElroy now and Shane Lowry. That's almost a given. Yeah. I don't know if Poulter's going to take on with a rookie or if he and Westwood, the Englishmen, are going to get together. But now, see, you already have the Spaniards, the Irishmen, the Englishmen. You have that already intact, and that gives them their advantage, their 1% advantage, even if they're not the best players. But the difference is here, they're not the hottest players. They are the most experienced. They have the most confidence starting out. They're not the hottest players. The American team is, and that's why I think the American team's going to win. Okay, you played on four uh, four Ryder Cup teams, won two, lost two. What was your worst moment in the Ryder Cup? A thing that you're like, I can't believe that happened. Oh, two. Yeah. When we lost, I made the bunker shot to keep it alive and went crazy because I just never, you know, I kept telling my caddy, he doesn't deserve it. This guy doesn't deserve the clinching point. You know, I like Nicholas Foss a lot, but there's all the celebrations and all that. And I tricked my brain into, you know, it's not the whole way to the Ryder Cups, not on me. I made it personal about him. And when I made that bunker shot, it was like, oh my God, oh my God, this is, maybe this is going to happen. And then Fear it behind him almost did the same thing. And then McGinley made the great putt, and that was it. And I remember how much my heart sunk when we lost. And it's tough to lose a Ryder Cup. We tied in 89, and uh, we won again. And, I'm not used to it, you know. Look, I remember in, in 89 when we won or tied. No, where was it? We I think put it was four in the water on 18 on Sunday, right? Yeah, yeah, four yeah. players put in the water. Yeah. Yeah, at the Belfast. In 91 when we won, I remember saying to uh, Lanny Watkins afterwards that, in that we had to have this victory dinner, which they've since canceled. Because the other team, the players would take off their tie and give you their tie, and it was this real submission. And in 91, I kept saying, I said to Lanny after, I said, man, I said, I I would be just devastated if I was in here and I had to do this and give them our tie. I can't believe how cheerful and how, you know, they were in such a great spirits. And Lanny said, Zinger, they're used to losing. And I was like, oh yeah, maybe that's right. Well, guess what? <laughs> now we're used to losing and they're used to yeah. winning. And I just thought, what a perspective. You know, you got to go all the way back to Lanny's age. And he's probably yeah. coming close to 65 or 75, 70 now or something. You got to go back to Lanny's age to find a generation that's used to throttling the European team. So if that was your lowest moment, what was your what was your favorite moment as a member? Was it being the captain? Because sometimes when you're a coach or a captain, you have all the power but no control. And that can be just frustrating. Yeah. So what was your favorite Ryder Cup moment of all the Ryder Cups you've been involved in? Well, because I was a winning captain, that's by a mile my, my yeah. favorite moment, even though I still wasn't in control. You know, but if you're not in control when you're the losing captain, that has to be so devastating. You can do everything right and still lose. We did everything right, and uh, we, it was still close on Sunday. We could have lost a putt here or there. So it's always fairly close. It comes down to a few putts, you know, on Sunday. The singles is 40 six or 44% of the whole competition. So it's so critical that you get the singles matches. Lately, they've been beating us in singles, but our Ryder Cup was by far my mountaintop experience. I lost a competitive edge from it because it was such a mountaintop for me. You know, I've never had a job 
essentially. And then suddenly you're in charge of, to be the leader of 12 men plus your assistants and all the speeches and stuff that you do that comes along with it. And I, you don't know, there's all of a sudden you, everything you do is based on self-belief, golf and sports and everything is self-belief. And then now I'm thrust in a situation where I have no, uh, self-belief really. I mean, I don't, can I do this? I don't know if I can do this, yeah. but I had formulated an idea that I wanted to try. I sold it, the concept of the Navy SEALs and all that. I guess deep down, I probably did have a self-belief that I could do it, but there's the unknown. I've never been in charge of anybody like that. Yeah. And, uh, so I think I've kind of got control by giving up control to them. My, my favorite quote in all of sports actually came from the 91 Ryder Cup. Uh, sport, it was a article in Sports Illustrated, and they were interviewing Hale, of course, you know, played in that final match with Longer, who missed that six-foot putt uh, to give the U.S. the cup. Hale had the greatest line of all time. He said, the sphincter factor was high out there. Yeah, that's a great quote, and it's true. And if, if he says yeah. it, you know, four U.S. Opens or three U.S. Opens in or whatever he's got, three U.S. Yeah. Opens, then it must be real. And it is real. I remember that day specifically, my personal match against Jose Maria in 1991, and I got in a fairway bunker on 16, a par five, and my third shot's a four iron to this par five green. And it sits up and the wind was cranking. And I got in the bunker and my whole body just relaxed. Like, I didn't realize how tight I'd been all day. And I got out of the bunker, I said to my caddy, I said, my whole body just relaxed. And I walked in there with a whole nother brain, flushed a four iron, and I ended up beating Jose two and one, we went to the last hole. Uh, or uh, I think two, yeah, two down was what I beat him, but yeah. what a match that was. But you don't realize what it's doing to you the whole time until it's over. You have the Wanamaker Trophy. You've won a major. You've won two Ryder Cups as a player and been a victorious captain. If you had to choose one, if someone said to you, you can't have both, you can only have one, what would you choose? Of uh, all that, let's see. I think I'd have to say the PGA Championship simply because I would not have been a Ryder Cup captain otherwise. And it's yeah. just one goes with the other. But my greatest mountaintop moment in my life, you know, in sports, my job is by a mile, the Ryder Cup. Uh, there's just nothing that can explain what that camaraderie did. I think we're still feel kind of like a family when we see each other. There's nothing quite like it. It is awesome. But yeah. What a privilege, what an honor to be a captain. You gotta be lucky. You gotta be so lucky to be a captain. And, and uh, I was. Well, you mentioned Stricker, and uh, he was—he was one of your—he uh, was on on your staff in two thousand eight. If if it's just the two of you alone somewhere, what would be the one thing you would say to him that would mean more, or be the most important thing you could tell him about what he's about to go through? It's going to go fast. You're going to be the most nervous you've ever been. Try to enjoy it. Create the best environment you can for those players to be successful. That's. You know, that's that's the other thing. I want to tell him, I want to call him today and say, hey, bud, you have to come up with at least a dozen questions that you know you're going to get asked. You've got to get Brooks and Bryson prepared for those questions when they're on the podium. Everyone should be on the same team. You know, in the end, there's no shortcut to success. That's what I would say. Uh, you can't hope for or wish for it. You have to prepare. You have to out-prepare the other team. You know, that's the main thing. And I have talked to him and I've told him all this already. You know, I, we had a, a couple of 30 minute conversations about just kind of how you get ready and what you have control of. Control the controllables and get out of their way. Put them in, 
give them ownership. That's the whole thing, I think. And I, I know Stricker's going to do a great job as captain, but once it, once you get to the first tee, this, this overwhelming feeling comes upon you. It did like it did me. I got no control of this. None. I can't go get a half a point or a point, nothing. And uh, it was a helpless feeling. And I think the biggest fear if you're a captain is you're going to lose. That's it. It's funny you say that because almost to a T, every great athlete I've ever talked to said the fear of losing <sighs> was a much bigger motivation than the joy of winning. Well, I'll tell you what, there's so much truth to that. I felt like I was gagging almost uh, before the match started on on Friday. Fury came up to me and said, holy shit. Holy crap, man, you need to relax. You're making me nervous. <laughs> That's how bad I felt. <laughs> and uh, we busted out laughing. I think it was a good moment for, for Fury. You know, it's not about having fun. In 06, he said he remembered how much fun those guys had. And uh, But on Friday morning, Fury said he put on his shoes and he looked in the players' eyes. And, and Jim told me, he said he knew on Friday morning, he said he looked in all the guys' eyes and he said, we're in trouble. Because he, he just didn't feel ready. And it really helped me sell the message of preparation to our Ryder Cup team. We knew that course. We own that course. I totally controlled it. I was the first captain to ever control the golf course, which blows my mind since they've controlled it on us for years upon years. And uh, I, you know, we, I just had the course in the rough mode to my, our, our player's strength. And that's what Stricker's doing. He's trying to gain every advantage he can. And uh, in the meantime, we're, we're bringing a European team to a link-style course. So we got an yeah. uphill battle the whole way. Well, we'll see, well, we'll see what happens. Um, look, it's always good to catch up with you, my friend. Uh, we enjoyed working together for a few years at a couple of open yeah. championships uh, uh, at St. Andrews and Muirfield. So uh, I always appreciate your insights. I'm jealous of you getting to be there and be part of the action. To me, the Ryder Cup is my favorite sporting event in the world. It's the only place I know where millionaires will play for free because there's just something on the line that's better than money. 15-13 US, it's gonna be close, but it's coming down to that, you watch. It's gonna be a good one. All right, you heard it here first. Paul, we appreciate it, buddy, thanks. You got it, bud, see ya. Really great to catch up with Paul. We had a lot of fun uh, covering US Open and Open Championship Golf together for many, many years. Uh, really appreciate his time, and we'll see what happens with the U.S. team at the Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits. But coming up next, on our next episode of Half Forgotten History, we're going way back in my personal history to the person who was my high school quarterback. And when he was in high school, he dated someone who won Miss USA and was runner-up Miss Universe. I mean, the rest of us never had a chance. I'm talking about Hall of Fame quarterback, the lefty, Steve Young. That's next time on Half Forgotten History.